Support for this podcast comes from the Jersey Shore, because the sun shines a little bit brighter in the state where the tomatoes, corn, and biceps are all oversized. From Nigel with the Brie, because 20 years later, it's still him. And from Floaties, because if you haven't noticed, Maeve's been gone for the month, and I'm swimming in sorrow. I'm Julie, and this is Overwater. Welcome to Overwater, the podcast that happens while chatting over water. I've got good news and bad news. Bad news is, aside from our guests, you're only going to be hearing from my voice today. The good news is that this is Overwater's first transnationally produced episode. Maeve has been contributing from Rio, Brazil, where she's been working on Olympic coverage, no big deal. But let's just say the title Overwater has never felt more fitting. I know that we mentioned last episode that we would be bringing you this episode on the topic of insecurity. Well, we're still working on it, believe it or not. And before we get to that episode, we actually found a story that we just couldn't wait to share. Meet Sandra. Now, anybody listening to this, if you felt the entire world shake on on July 13th, 1995, that was me screaming. I screamed, never underestimate the power of a good scream. I met Sandra and her husband, Larry, a few months ago when a family friend explained to me the idea of hypnosis. Larry and Sandra are husband and wife hypnotists. And this story is about the unlikely way that they found their unlikely craft and how they help themselves in the process. First things first, let's address all those preconceptions about hypnosis. When you think of hypnosis, you're probably imagining some sort of diabolical ringleader who leads large assemblies of zombie people to make cow noises and spill their deepest secrets on stage at a county fair, right? Yeah, that's what I thought too. But here's where I became fascinated. Larry and Sandra actually use hypnosis to work one-on-one with people who've suffered trauma, grief, are quitting addiction, they're getting over past relationships. They practice what's called hypnotherapy. It's talk therapy, but it happens under trance, and the goal is to bypass the conscious mind to get right to the subconscious, where the juicy stuff lives, our emotions, our fears, our scars from past pain. Fascinating stuff, right? Well, Even more interesting is the unconventional path that led them to become professional hypnotists. It's a story of trauma and recovery, and that's what you guys are going to be hearing about today. Oh, and stick around for the end. I had to get in on the fun, guys. I let Larry hypnotize me. We, we shared an English class and, uh, you know, we met through school anyway, because it's, a, you know, it's a small school system. We already knew each other, but, uh, when it, I couldn't date till I was 16 and parents Larry, rules. parents rules. 
And my father um, employed high school boys throughout the summer on his bailing crew because he bailed hay and straw. And Larry was one of the bailing boys. And I wasn't allowed to date until I was 16. And Larry took me out on my 16th birthday. They were married two years later. This was in the 70s. So right when he was graduating high school at age 17, Larry did what many teenage boys were doing at the time. He went into the Army. I was really sort of looking to escape from Indiana. I grew up on the farm uh, in central Indiana. It's a great place as far as getting a work ethic and uh, understanding the dynamics of life. But it wasn't what I wanted to do the rest of my life. And I was fairly certain of that at that point. So I was looking for something outside of Indiana. I was looking for something that I could go, some place to go and be something that I wanted to be and not just be a farmer. I knew it wasn't going to be Indiana, um, which was the important part to me at that point in time. But no, I had no uh, understanding. I signed up to go to Germany for, with a job in communications. And what was your reaction to that? Oh, bring on the adventure. You know, one of the, the things that Larry promised me on our wedding day was you'll never be bored. And in, in 39 years, I have never been bored. I've been many things. Mm-hmm. Bored has not been one of those things. We were married at age 18, and by the time we were 24, we had three kids. So as Larry was soldiering, I was raising our kids, and we were bouncing between um, central Germany and Fort Gordon, Georgia, back and forth between those two quite a bit. And so my role was, I called it relocation specialist, you know, because you get the kids settled, and it (laughs) takes a while for it to feel like home. And then there's a short piece in the middle where you get to just kind of live. This is day-to-day living. And then you have to start preparing to pack up and move again. And with a movement every three years, I was the person that raised the kids and got that relocation process rolling every time, you know, whether it was in in beginning or in, in settling in. And we did that for 20 years. Fast forward to 1987, during the Cold War, when the U.S. was looking at Russia as a serious threat. Larry was part of a tactical signal brigade, and they were deployed on missions around Europe to make sure that the U.S. Army's communications were in place should they need to use them. Actually, if you go back historically and look, that was probably one of the most uh, contemptuous times between our governments between Russia and the NATO alliance in the U.S. So I find out now that there was a lot of potential for that to have actually become what we were training for. It just never did. Uh, I mean, every time you got a drill call, you didn't know if it was real or not until you got there. Little did they know, Larry wasn't the one in danger. In 1995, Sandra and Larry lived a nightmare. We were a soldier family um, stationed in Worms, Germany, and... Our son was a uh, champion high school wrestler, and he had been at a he had been at a practice, and a friend of his came down too hard on his chest. Three days later, a blood clot broke loose, broke loose from his lungs and exploded inside of his brain. And so Nick suffered a massive stroke, and we got him to the German hospital, and they put him on total life support. 
with the intention of bringing his dad out of the Bosnian. Uh, his dad was a soldier with the Bosnian crisis at the time. And it took about 24 hours for Larry to get home. And by the time Larry got there, uh, the Americans had shown up and said, you know what, you're not going to shut off the life support. This is an American kid. We will get him on a plane as soon as we can get the plane on the tarmac. But do what you have to do to keep him alive. So by the time Larry got there, 24 hours after Nick hit the ground, our son went into brain surgery. He survived. Um, so I was with the Joint Task Force uh, headquarters down in Italy when um, I got the phone call about 11 o'clock at night that Nick had had a stroke and I needed to come home. There was an airstrike going on in Italy, so trying to get a flight out of Rome uh, was extremely difficult. Yeah. <clears throat> so by the time I got back, it had been 26 or 27 hours from when I got back. What were those 24 hours like for you? Um, I actually, it was somewhat sur surreal because I can't imagine a 17-year-old having a stroke, or at least I couldn't at that point. Uh, in fact, most of the people that when we were calling and talking to them were certain it was me that had the stroke because somebody that was 35 or 36 years old having a stroke isn't totally unheard of. Yeah. But a 17-year-old, that's never heard of. It's never even considered. What was the struggle for me during that particular footprint in our life is that from the trauma center, they put Nick on total life support. And then about midnight that night, they decided that his life was no longer viable and they were going to shut him off. Now, anybody listening to this, if you felt the entire world shake on, on July 13th, 1995, that was me screaming. I screamed, never underestimate the power of a good scream. I screamed and took the hospital down. And they decided, you know what? Let's not touch this button. Let's, he's already hooked up. Let's just let it roll until her husband gets here so that she'll have him with her when we shut this button off. Today, Sandra is forever grateful that it took her husband a full 24 hours to get to the hospital because those hours of waiting were what saved her son from being taken off life support. Essentially, those 24 hours saved Nick's life. But that is only an insight that Sandra arrived to about 15 years after Nick's stroke, and we'll get to that. But it's not to say that the next few years were easy. What came next for the family was a lot of work. What they told us is the first year we would have the most improvement. The second year there would be some. And anything at the end of year three that he could not do, he would never do. How do you deal with that timeline? That seems You work your stressful. ass off. Yeah. You don't stop. The first yeah. year, I mean, it was like his, his mind had become almost... Um, we called it scrambled eggs, but that was just our, our word for it. But everything was all jumbled. And so we would speak, and then we would speak again. And and we got him back into his senior year of high school. And he would go and rest in the nurse's office several times a day. And he would go to his classes with the requirement to uh, do his best. That's basically how his IEP was written. Um, but what was amazing was at the time for the American schools in Europe – when you graduated with an IEP, which is an individual education plan, if you graduated with an IEP, you still got a full diploma. So Nick stood with his class in the cathedral 
in Worms, Germany. And when he got handed his high school diploma, the entire cathedral went to their feet <laughs> and cheered because everybody knew. Yeah. We had been the poster child family for recovery for a year. So Nick got a full high school diploma with no limitations written into it at all. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. But there were... I was at the school most days. Yeah. If he needed to go home, I drove him home. If he needed to go to therapy, I drove him to therapy. If therapy needed to come to him, therapy came to him. It, it, was, it was a big life. At the end of two years, when he stepped off to be a, a responsible adult in a school that we chose for him that could meet his special needs, my health totally fell apart. I had destroyed myself from the inside out. But we didn't even realize it because that wasn't the point of view. Yeah, it is exhausting. But you know what? It was worth it. I wouldn't have changed yeah. the thing. Yeah. I wouldn't. And, and I didn't even know I was sick. It was tough. It was tough because we also didn't know how tired I was. And and it, for me, it was a, digest, a digestive system. I had um, just the anxiety of all of that had destroyed um, my stomach. The, the whole, um, I think it's called GERD. I'm, I'm not sure what the name of it. Reflux. Oh, yeah. yeah, the reflux stuff. And And so I had to have surgery to repair my esophagus. But in the middle of all that, I was exhausted. Sandra was just starting to realize the effect that Nick's round-the-clock care had taken on her body. On top of the physical issues, the stomach, the esophagus issues, she had to manage this forward momentum that drove her every single day to push Nick to recover. It really was a 24-7 attitude. And she couldn't just stop. So when Nick went away, she funneled that energy into a job taking care of Alzheimer's patients. And then she curbed it even further, working daytime hours in a public school for kids with autism. And that was great, but the pain from that night in the trauma center still sat deep within her. For years, Sandra would relive the trauma of Nick going down on July 13th. On that exact day, she would have a meltdown at 7.10 p.m., the exact time that Nick went down. She also resented Larry for not being there that night, for taking almost 27 hours to arrive to the trauma center. It really wasn't until 15 years after Nick's stroke that Sandra's pain started to unravel. I had somebody that asked me, if you could have anything, Sandra, what would it be? Just somebody that was just, we were just having a fun, casual, if sky's the limit conversation, what would you do? And I said, well, you know, years ago, I had this surgery in my esophagus. And even today, I have this lock on my throat that I'm scared every time I swallow because it used to be really bad. Well, I hadn't had a spasm in years, but I was still afraid of swallowing every time. And this guy picks up the phone, calls his, his friend who happens to be a hypnotist and said, hey, I got this friend who's got a lock on her throat from a past trauma. Can you fix that? And he goes, yeah, one session, ever come on over. He was right. That one session of hypnotic therapy fixed Sandra's lingering esophagus issue. So Sandra figured she'd try tapping into something else with Todd and her hypnotist. Something a little more profound. So Todd knew that Nick had gone down. He knew that Larry had not been there the first time. And he knew that it had been a nightmare of mine for 15 years at that point. We at least gave him that information. And so... He he took me into hypnosis, and we didn't have to go looking. It was like, okay, you know, I'm going to count, and you're going to be back in that that trauma center. Didn't I knew exactly where to go? I'd been there many times over the 15 years prior to that, and when I arrived, it was as if, from the feeling perspective, 
I was back in that room again, and the sights and the sounds and the god-awful bright lights, the lights were so bright in my eyes, I could hardly see. And Nick opened his eyes and looked at me the night of the event, and he knew he was going to die. I knew he was going to die. There was no doubt. He was telling me goodbye. And all I could say is, I'm not done being your mom yet, and I love you, and goodbye. And that was the moment that had seared in my heart for all of those years. So what Todd did is he took me back to that moment and said, Sandra, and this is all hypnotically, this time I'm crying like a baby holding Larry's hand. He's with me now because we're doing it 15 years later and Larry's holding my hand. And all he said was, Sandra, talk to him. Talk to your son. And I said, Nick, you don't die tonight. I'm back at that moment with a second chance. I've got a new opportunity to handle it differently. And when you look at something differently, what you look at changes. And I looked at the heart of my son. I looked into those same eyes and I said, son, you're not going to die tonight. You're going to go to sleep. And when you wake up in a week, you're going to call me mom. In three weeks, you're going to walk out of this hospital. You're going to get in your car and your dad's going to drive you home. You are, at the time, I think he was 34. I said, you are 34 years old. You live in San Antonio, Texas. I told him the name of his wife, his son, his daughter, his dog. I told him what kind of car he was driving. I told him where he was working. And and I was able to give him hope. And in giving him hope, it healed me. It set me free from not really, it's not really fair to say I gave up on him, but letting him go. And so when I went back into this event, I got to say everything on how it did turn out. Mm -hmm. And then Todd says, okay, Sandra, when you're finished, back up. And the lights were so blazingly bright. I mean, a trauma center, the lights are at a million percent, right? And the lights were so, so bright. And he says, okay, Sandra, shut off the lights, close the door, and you never have to go in there again. And I was free. I healed that night. I healed of the trauma of looking into my son's dying eyes and telling him goodbye. Evenings and weekends, I was out promoting. I was telling people about it. I was helping him lose weight, stop smoking, uh, deal with stress, anxiety, and depression. And it was just amazing um, what I saw within the people I was working with. You guys know by now, that's Larry. And what he was out promoting was hypnosis, his own hypnosis business. After witnessing the effect that hypnosis had on Sandra, Larry became a hypnotherapist. He got certified. And then Sandra became a hypnotherapist. Seven years ago, they left their day jobs and they started their own hypnotherapy center where they see clients every day. The more I did it, the more I wanted to do it. Um, which was a little challenging because I did have a full-time day job. I was a contractor for the Department of Defense, um, and I was helping them at that point uh, do coordination for radio frequencies uh, for the DOD on a national level. And we were doing that um, while the cell phone industry is screaming for more spectrum and all these other things that want more spectrum from a civil standpoint. Uh, we were defending the spectrum the DOD is using and protecting it so that they could continue their mission. No one that I worked with um, understood me leaving the job. When I told them that I was leaving, they all assumed I was going to another defense contractor to work for the competition. 
And I said, no, I'm going to become a hypnotist. And he said, what? <laughs> As a hypnotist, we don't do some weird voodoo magic. We actually are escorting you through a series of procedures that help you change your perspective, or we help you find those traumatic things of the past that you need to resolve, and then we help you resolve them. It's all done in assistant mode because you're the one that does the heavy work. You're the one that makes the change within you. We just show you how. So I started doing some research on hypnotherapy, and I found that Freud's earliest theories were actually rooted in hypnosis. He studied hypnotism at the Paris school, and he would allegedly press his thumb to his patients' foreheads to put them in a state of deep focus, the equivalent of putting them into trance. While in trance, he interacted with them to try to access their repressed memories. Here's the bare bones of hypnotherapy. A hypnotist puts you into trance, and according to whatever struggle you're having, the hypnotist makes suggestions to your subconscious directly to your subconscious. And if you agree to those suggestions under trance, then theoretically, your subconscious will also agree to those suggestions outside of trance. Now this trance aspect involves putting your conscious, which is the thinker, the rationalizing mind, to sleep in order to access the subconscious, the emotional mind. And I have to offer the disclaimer that these are very general terms under which to describe the mind. But think about it this way. The subconscious holds some of our deepest fears, and in Sandra's and many other cases, it holds pain from past traumas. So putting the conscious mind to the side seems like a pretty effective way to get to those really touchy spots. So after all this talk of hypnosis, I wanted to try it. Hi, Larry. I'm In order for hypnosis to be effective, you have to be open to it, to believe that it could have a positive effect. So when I walked into Larry's office, I had prepared myself to be open to being hypnotized. That doesn't mean I wasn't nervous. So now we're going to begin starting with me counting from 10 down to 1. And with each number I count, I want you to double your physical relaxation and doubling the focus on the sound of my voice. 9, as if a warm wave is passing through your body and everywhere that that warm wave touches, your body just relaxes more seeking that wonderful feeling of inner peace. Eight. And the deeper you go, the better you feel. And the better you feel, the more you can relax. And the more you can relax, the more comfortable you are. Seven. Just going deeper and deeper. Six. Double again. 
Thanks to Larry and Sandra for sharing their incredible story and craft, and to the immensely talented Matt Bukley for our new music. Audrey Kelly wrote our theme song, and if you're wondering, I went into trance, and I loved it.